Hello and welcome to Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, where I, your host, Jeremy Kingsbury, explores the likely repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Let's enjoy some music. Season 8, Episode 1. I am delighted to be back. It was an interesting month away. A lot has uh, changed, and my my thinking about this music has shifted a little bit. But I'm still really eager to uh, have this episode be the manifesto kind of thing that I had been uh, saying it was going to be for a couple months uh, to lots of people in private, and I think occasionally on the podcast, too. Um, in the process of getting ready for like what I was going to talk about, uh, what my process was, or what my big takeaways were, I realized that I have been somewhat seriously trying to uncover the repertoire and perform the repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers for 21 years at this point. In 2003, I uh, took a job, uh, well, I guess I was an intern with the National Park Service, where, you know, I worked as a park ranger five days a week, and uh, at least once or twice a week, I gave, you know, formal programs um, playing bagpipes and talking about um, the repertoire of a bagpiper from the 1790s. And... You know, so anyway, so 20 plus years, I have been somewhat seriously or very seriously trying to do this thing that the podcast is, right? Try to uncover the likely repertoire of 18th or early 19th century bagpipers. So after 20 years, surely I've, I've got something to say about it, right? So let's see, what do I have to say about it? I've dis- I've kind of distilled it down into three main observations that are all pretty closely related, and then two other kind of observation slash tips is is what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to kind of give you the the footnotes version or the cliff notes version up front, and then uh, I've got some kind of primary sources that we'll read and and discuss as well uh, for the second half of this episode. I think observation one is that bagpipe music is fun, right? It's supposed to be fun. And when I, uh, and that it always sort of pushes things and it's, uh, it has, has done complicated things for a really long time. When I first started working in the park service and talking about bagpipes and trying to give programs, I used to talk about kitchen piping a little bit and not disparagingly necessarily, but just as a demonstration of how much, diversity we had lost in piping that uh, in highland piping anyway that we needed kitchen piping to come onto the scene in the 80s to like remind people that music can be can be fun um and looking at the, the introduction to neil dickey's first book i love his definition of kitchen piping uh the c definition here is a type of bagpipe music whose principal function is to entertain easily distinguished by its high degree of creative technicality and musical innovation that whole thing of it's supposed to entertain, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> this is supposed to be fun. And it often was like fun and fast. And I think there were so many uh, different pipers in different schools and ice, like somewhat isolated communities that were able to uh, not worry about winning in competitions because they didn't exist yet until the 1780s and kind of had the, the, 
the particular style and choice of the performer on the day led to, I think, some really interesting things in the 18th century. But my my favorite example of this when I first started giving these bagpipe programs at Grand Portage was to play a Neil Dickey tune and then a Donald McDonald tune. And like, they're not the same tune, but they sound so close together that it was really interesting to me to say, yeah, we need this kitchen piping. You know, this is something that's, you wouldn't, you know, this is really light music. You would never compete with this. It's rinky dink is, you know, people would make fun of it. And then you look at Donald McDonald, like the first printed collection of light music. And we've got tunes in there that, that fit perfectly well as, as a set. And that, you know, we've just lost a lot of diversity. I think that, that militaristic piping and competition really streamlined things and reduced it. But anyway, let's hear that set. I've been talking for a while. Uh, this is Patty by Neil Dickey, followed by Dunrobin Castle by Donald McDonald. Yeah, clearly not the same tune, but they flow really well together. They work as a good set, and I don't think Dunrobin Castle sounds particularly uh, out of place next to Patty. Like Patty doesn't sound to me anyway like it wouldn't have, like it wouldn't have made people's ears like shocked uh, in the 18th century to hear somebody play Patty. Um, as lovely of a, of a tune as it is. I don't know, in season, I think, I guess season two of the podcast, back in the olden days of Way Too Tug's uh, podcast, A Bagpipe Power, I was playing through a Neil Dickey tune and a Donald McDonald tune every episode. Um, they didn't always compare necessarily, but it was uh, a fun exercise that we're, I don't know, I mean, realizing that um, the first book is, you know, it's it turned 40 last year. Um, 
Maybe I should do another playthrough. Season two of the podcast, I used to play a Donald McDonald and a Neil Dickey tune and a Robert Burns song every episode. That was sort of the deal. Um, but yeah, maybe I should do it. Although it's only 40. And, you know, I've definitely heard actual PhD holding historians say that uh, anything that happened within the 50 years doesn't count as history. That's current events. So I guess I can't. I guess we have to wait 10 more years to play Neil Dickey. Uh, the other thing that I think is important here about, you know, playing fun music that is entertaining is that I think bagpipers... Uh, Highland Pipers especially, because it, inherently we think of it as such a limited range instrument. The other bagpipes that I play, like Ellen Pipes explicitly, are an extended range instrument. Like That is one of the reasons they were so popular, is people liked bagpipes but didn't like that they couldn't easily play two octaves, so pastoral pipes became really trendy. Um, and Highland Pipers weren't immune to that. Border Pipers certainly weren't immune to that. Because of Border Pipes sort of go out of fashion so quickly after the 18th century, the 18th century approach to it, I think, has been more thoroughly researched. And so people, like, we accept that border pipers played, you know, high Bs and high Cs. But the reality is that Highland Pipers did that stuff, too. Um, I'm kind of disgruntled. Uh, honestly, one of my, you know, go-to sources for thinking about this music I was revisiting today, it's John Gibson's um, traditional Gaelic bagpiping, I think. Uh, big book. Haven't read it since I was, uh, again, just starting at Grand Portage nearly 20 years ago. And anyway, he was talking about Patrick McDonald's collection and said that, oh, yeah, in that last section, there are several, there's two tunes in there that aren't uh, from Highland Bagpipes that everything else is. And we can tell they're not Highland Bagpipes because they are not in keys that you can play and they go beyond the range of the chanter. Like, there's a high B in that collection that he's talking about. Highland Pipers absolutely played high Bs and high Cs, and you can absolutely play the keys that the the whole last stretch in it's just like we've we've really narrowed our focus like the the way the fact that kitchen piping needed to come into existence and the fact that scholars i think the new eliza ross book i've heard does the same thing i have some of those tunes that are categorized as bagpipe tunes because they fit in that nine note stretch or they're in certain keys like that's not how music worked back then and this kind of leads me in uh to my second point I have realized that I uh, balk and I get frustrated at categories, um, which is stupid. That's how we organize the world. But I think it's really important to like just step in and realize that we put artificial boundaries on music when we're, especially when we're thinking about things in the past. There's this idea that somehow the late 18th century or the 18th century or the past was isolated and uh, and really unique and not influenced by anything else and totally siloed into their own pure, unchanging traditions. That's nonsense. Um, these traditions, like Scottish music, Irish music, Scottish piping, Irish piping, English piping, all of those repertoires shared tunes. Um, they aren't in these really extreme silos of, of different choices. And we can see that some of the episodes I'm like most proud of or fondly remember, and that was the funnest exercise, was like tracing how Over the Hills and Far Away and Lark in the Morning are the same tune. Like in England, it's Over the Hills and Far Away. Ireland, we get Galloway Tom or Lark in the Morning as it's known today. But like we see that same melody show up in collections in England and in Scotland and in Ireland. Um, or like Caberfay, how Caberfay goes from this is a tune about a horse race in England and in the borders to this is stag antlers in the highlands to this is, uh, is it Patty Rafferty in Ireland? Like it's all these same melodies or, or not even like different names, but 
like Jack Latin, right? Jack Latin dies, and seemingly there's a supernova event where a melody named after this this dead dancer is everywhere. Like within five years of Jack Latin's death, you can find the tune Jack Latin in English collections, Scottish collections, and Irish collections. They're just everywhere. That was a really popular tune. So like thinking of these things as extremely siloed is is a is a, a inherent error. Certainly there are traditions, right? Like there are things that we can identify as, oh, this is a way that Piper's played in the Outer Hebrides or on Sky or in Rossi or in uh, Donegal or Dublin. Like, sure, there are traditions, but to pretend like Piper's only were exposed to those specific traditions and didn't also know music from other places is is wrong, uh, especially in 18th century, like, so much of the world's favorite music is coming from Italy, like Western Europe's favorite music, like the in England and in Scotland and um, kind of by extension in Ireland. Italian music was really trendy, which is why Oswald and McGibbon were such big names, right? Like James Oswald and McGibbon both do a lot of Italian stuff. Even in Patrick McDonald's introduction, they talk about how Joseph McDonald, right, the like granddaddy of writing about Pibroch in English himself. Like, he spent times with Pasquale in, in Edinburgh, like, learning, you know, spending all these Italian virtuoso things, going on the grand tour, right? So things are not siloed. And this leads me into my third point in terms of talking about Italian music, which is pop music was played on the bagpipes. It went both ways, of course. Like, bagpipe music became pop music. But there's, a, again, thinking of, like, oh, no, these are just robust traditions. Like, all Scottish music was just from people stretching wool or doing working songs. Like, no, no, no. Like, stuff that is being performed on the stage is also making its way into the repertoire of, of pipers. This is certainly happening uh, in Scotland and England and in Ireland. Like, we can tell from the various manuscripts and, and collected tunes like pipers were playing stuff from the stage and stuff from the stage was uh, or stuff from pipers was showing up on the stage as well uh kind of like i said before like jackson's morning brush is in all of these country dances uh all of these country dance books like all this pop music stuff is you've you've got a version of various scottish folk songs or um jackson's morning brush uh, and you also have pipers picking up country dance books and playing it, Piper's picking up uh, broadsides of operas and plays and, and musical performances that are happening in the theaters in Edinburgh and in London and in Dublin and adding that to their repertoire. Like, pop music was very much uh, attractive and played for for people. Pete Stewart has talked about this in his books. Uh, Dave Rollins has talked about it in his books. I'd really like to get... Um, Dave on the podcast to talk about it sometime because he's done a great job of publishing some articles and some books in um, articles in the Chanter and and books kind of showing that the, how the stage influenced um, Piper's repertoire. Um, but yeah, I think you know there's a tendency for us to like people will maybe look down at like a TikTok bagpipe cover of pop music or I know we've all grown kind of tired of seeing the bad pipers uh, flaming. I guess I haven't actually gotten a bad piper video in a couple of years. That's that's good. But but anyway, when we get frustrated with like the folks who get frustrated with Unipiper or Bad Piper or Snake Charmer or whatever, like all these people that are, are doing covers of popular music and popular film scores, like 
they would fit in in the 18th century. Like that is how people approached music too, right? Like, yeah, if you don't have access to recorded music and you just saw a play that you really liked or a, a you know, a performance that you really liked, you want the musicians in your life to play that music. And the musicians know that if they can play something that just was heard on the stage in Covent Garden, like they're going to get better tips. People are going to like them around more. They're playing the, the top 40 hits. So um, kind of ignoring the wider world of 18th century music uh, is a mistake when trying to figure out just what the repertoire was of 18th century bagpipers. Okay, so those are, those are my observations about the repertoire, right? The, the plausible, the likely repertoire, as I, I think I say in the intro often. Um, next are kind of some more observations, but also just sort of tips, things that have worked for me or that I want to keep in mind uh, going forward. Um, and I think the first one, and this is a, a a horse I have beat to death several times on the podcast, but in order to make really good music from 18th century sources, you don't need to have a robust understanding of musical theory. You don't even need to be able to read sheet music. That being said, if you can read sheet music, you have a lot more opportunities. And the more musical theory grounding you have probably the better off you're going to be. Um, this is uh, shocking, I know, uh, coming from me, but I, you know, in the month I was away, I learned music theory and uh, realized what a foolish boogeyman of a title that music theory in scare quotes is. Um, so that's what the next episode uh, is going to be, is kind of talking about music theory for the, for the 18th century bagpiper, like what is going to be helpful for us to uncover that repertoire. But what I will say is like until literally until two weeks ago, I couldn't read key signatures and didn't understand why they were useful or important to know. And yet for 20 years, I think I've been doing a pretty good job of kind of poking at and making a reasonable facsimile or like a version of the repertoire that 18th century bagpipers did. So you can do that. I would recommend learning how to read music though. Um, probably if I'm, you know, I am speaking for myself, right? And I, my first instrument was Highland bagpipes. If we don't count doing a bad job of learning recorder in fourth grade or second grade. Um, first real instrument is, is Highland bagpipes. And when I say real instrument, I mean, recorders are real instruments. I love them, but I was not really playing it. Right. Um, but anyway, first real focus on music was, was Highland bagpipes. And I've told the story over and over and over again, uh, in various places. But right. When I asked Ann Brown, my very patient music teacher, either what a, tr I think what a treble clef was, I said, what is that? And she said, you're a bagpiper, Jeremy. You don't have to pay attention to it. Um, and I was like, okay, note to self, ignore that stuff. And I'm now I'm realizing that she meant it because you kind of have to ignore that stuff because so much of Highland bagpiping music, um, printed stuff ignores, the basic, um, all of it ignores music theory, right? So that means that you can, you can get by, especially if you can read music. And if you're kind of trained in that Highland bagpiper mindset of looking at the staff and kind of knowing where A is and high A, and you're kind of oriented that way and you don't care about key signatures, that's fine. That's, that's good. I would recommend, uh, if that's where your starting point, that's where I was 20 plus years ago. Um, 
yeah, 20 years ago, I was there. I could just read Highland Bagpipe music and not really think of anything else beyond music theory. And then 20 years ago, I got a hold of O'Farrell's Pocketbook Companion, and I wanted to learn that music so bad that like I learned how to read music starting down on D rather than on the A. So like that note below the staff. So if you are like I was, where you could only read music in like Highland Bagpipe setting, like that is what I would highly recommend if you want to have way more access to tunes is get yourself a D whistle and learn how to read music that starts down on the D. And then all of a sudden, if you're looking through 18th century sources, if you can only play tunes that fit on that Highland pipe, you know, range, uh, assuming that you have a chanter that can pinch up to high C even, um, which I know most people don't, but like, if you just have those nine notes, especially, and in that one position, you can play like maybe an eighth of the material that you'll find in various 18th century sources, maybe less than that. But as soon as you can then drop down and read music fairly easily that starts on D, oh, you can, it's like most of it. You can read most of it. Like, um, it's great. And we'll talk next time. We'll talk about key signatures and how I can take you from like being able to read two thirds of the music to all of it and being able to make music with it easily, not eh, relatively easily, but like it is worth your time. If you are a Highland Piper who only kind of reads an A and this is worth your time to learn how to D. And if you're an Illin Piper who is totally learned by ear, um, which I, I'm generalizing here, but generally it is like Irish tradition folks that don't bother with sheet music, right? You just learn by ear. I think that's great. I think you can make an incredible music. Like Ronan freaking Brown doesn't read sheet music, right? Blackie O'Connell doesn't really read sheet music. Tiernan, I guess Tiernan does, uh, but he kind of teaches people not to. So like, um, or like he doesn't force people to learn how to, I guess is, is the more accurate thing to say. I'm remembering a conversation I heard him have several years ago. So all that's with a giant grain of salt. But anyway, you can make incredible music, even 18th century kind of influenced music without being able to, to read it. But if you want to dig into these sources yourself, I would learn how. And I, and even if you are an Inland Piper who comfortably reads, like starting in D, learn how to read something someplace else. Like start reading music in a different place. We'll talk about this more next time, but being able to read music and not just being glued to our one spot. Like we're as pipers, we think, I think of finger position. And if you can, the, the more places you can read on the staff and have a different finger position, the better you're going to be for making music with this stuff. So anyway, that is, that is my tip here is you don't really need, um, you don't need a ton of music theory to make good music with this stuff, but it's also not the boogeyman. Like I have made it out to be for years uh, of doing this podcast, but we'll talk more about that, uh, next time. And I guess the final tip or observation here that I'm going to do in this first half of the podcast is just like, don't be discouraged. I think one of the perks to fixating on 18, like music of the past is we're connected back to an era where musicians ran the gamut of things. We are bombarded by perfection when it comes to music these days, which is great. It's a great time to be alive and be able to easily call back the best recordings and performances that have happened in the last hundred years. Like, that's obviously good. That's a nice thing to have. But it can be really discouraging as a musician to, like, constantly be watching your heroes play and think, well, I'm not going to do that. You know, and I I think, think connecting to our 18th century ancestor 
musicians kind of reminds us of the important role that music had throughout human history, right? Like it's only in the last hundred years really that uh, musicians are all of a sudden expected to like, are like you have no choice, but to be the best or not bother. It can, can feel like, and I think like cluing into 18th century musicians is a great way to remember just what an interesting legacy that we're part of. Like we come from a long line of really important people to society, you know, to, to make music and especially bagpipers. Like we've got the loud one, you know, um, and the loud one, even if you don't have the loud one, you've got the one that never stops. Cause we got bags. Like it's magic. We can play dance tunes or mournful laments all night long in order to make people happy, make people sad, kind of finish out their, contemplation on a lost loved one or work up the courage to ask their, you know, crush out on a date or work up the courage to charge across the battlefield. Like this is cool stuff that we do music. And it's really easy to forget that when you're constantly able to listen to literally the best performers of our instrument on the planet. So embrace the functional music, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, Remember that music used to be functional as well as beautiful and lean into that. It's okay to like not be perfect, but just to be making good, good music. And that is one of the perks of, you know, 18th century music is like, it's really clues you into that, you know, cause that's, that's it. Right. I think this is part of my frustration with music theory in the past too. It was like, I'm, I'm a historian, but I'm a historian of people. Like I don't really study, um, institutions or sciences or philosophies even i study people and i'm interested in this music because of how people interacted with it how people were entertained like that functional use of things and i think i'm going to kind of go from there and and play a tune and i'm going to try to stretch a metaphor here of function as well as um you know beauty function and and purpose right so i'm going to play a tune that i wrote but very much inspired by you know historic stories and historic music and the tune is called the pretty sporin if you are in a position to wear a kilt often uh or occasionally you know that a sporin is that you know front sitting purse uh in front of your your apron of the kilt and oftentimes today sporins are really beautiful but they are um they're still functional, but the beauty as uh, the beauty has kind of replaced it. Well, I wanted a functional sporn that looked like one from the 18th century, and your options for that are either kind of a plain Jane leather bag, or a cantle top sporn. Those like metal arches over the the top of the bag or the purse. The problem with those cantle top bags, like you can get cantle top sporns these days that are very good looking, but they're uh, they don't function the same way as 18th century sporns did. They use a little snap button and kind of fold back so you can get access to it, and they tend to be pretty small. Whereas in the 18th century, if you had a a metal cantled sporn, it was clockwork in there. You pushed a button, it popped open, you grabbed your stuff, you closed the button afterwards. It was uh, arguably less functional, but it was kind of like it was a more functional thing. Just like I want my music to be functional and close to the past. Uh, anyway, I wanted one of these sporns so bad. They're so expensive. Um, and people who make functional 
cantles are charging an arm and leg for them. And I'm decent enough at leatherworking, so I wanted to make my own bag. I just wanted the cantle top. And the best way to get that was through a reproduction made, I think, after World War II. The Ministry of Defense made these the Jacobite cantle, they call it, for um, the military. And it's very much, it, it looks very close to 18th century cantles. There are some intricate things that aren't quite right. Anyway, a buddy of mine I knew <laughs> like had access to them, and I, I wanted one so bad. And so I uh, kind of got a friend of a friend, got us in touch, and I said, hey, I would really like to buy one of your cantles. Uh, how about I write a tune for it? And so I wrote this tune, The Pretty Spore, and hoping that I would trigger a sense of like history in him, like, oh yeah, I've heard the tune, The Pretty Spore, and where Padraig Og McCrimmon you know, saw a, a chief visiting who had a very lovely uh, dirk, the pretty dirk rather, uh, with a big jewel on it. And Patrick Og McCrimmon basically said, I fancy your dirk. And the guy said, write me a tune. Patrick Og, over the course of a couple of days, writes the tune and whammo, he gives him the dirk. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write the pretty sporin. This guy's going to get it. He's going to be like, yeah, lovely tune. Here's the sporin for free. Uh, didn't happen, but uh, <laughs> but I, I wrote the tune anyway. So anyway, here is the pretty sporin. Obviously, that tune is inspired by Peabrock, but I was also trying to make it a bit of a descriptive piece with the embellishment, and the the notes were supposed to be the sound and the feel of a 
like pushing the button so the cantle opens and the cantle closing again um, was sort of my approach to it. But it was also inspired by various um, passages of The Pretty Dirk. So I'm going to play uh, The Pretty Dirk for you now. This is roughly the Angus Mackay setting performed on Scottish lowland pipes in the key of A. And you're probably thinking, well, that's an inappropriate instrument to play Pibroch on, and boy, would you be wrong, uh, which will, which is a good segue into the rest of the manifesto episode. Anyway, here is the pretty jerk. Lovely tune, and if you were listening and confused, uh, remember my A lowland pipes are, they can play in G as well, like I have a G chanter and an A chanter, so John Swain included a tone hole on the drone so I can switch them back and forth, and I realized I can play the tenor tone hole with my neck so I can drop that drone down to G, which really works nicely as an accompaniment for that part. And that sort of experimentation with the instrument Uh, and seeing what you can do is something that pipers in the 18th century did. Kind of pushing the boundaries and experimenting with what your instrument is capable of is something that pipers have been doing for a very long time, and it kind of ties into why I'm playing Pibroch on lowland pipes. Um, One of the reasons, the main reason that I'm interested in such a narrow period of time for piping, like 1780 to 1821, is that is the era in which a fur trading company operated on on Lake Superior that was owned by Scots and hired a piper to entertain themselves. 
when they were in North America, they had a, I think, Highland Piper named George Mackay. And when they were in their offices in London, they were less than a mile from Covent Garden Theatre, where O'Farrell played loads of music. So my goal has always been to try to figure out the repertoire of George Mackay, the, who I think is a Highland Piper, uh, who worked at Grand Portage and where I live now on the Red River for about seven years, and to try to kind of get an idea of the repertoire for O'Farrell. O'Farrell's way easier, of course, because he has published several tune books, and we'll get to that in a second. George Mackay is a little bit more challenging. Um, and that took a while to figure out just what George Mackay wanted to sounded like, and it recently had a wrinkle thrown into it by my good friend, uh, Abe Zatek, who we heard from very briefly on the uh, Way Too Twelve in the Wild at Fort William episode. But Abe is also a piper and also works at a 18th century, well, 19th century fur trade historical site where the Northwest Company operated up in Canada when they moved to Fort William, uh, named... In theory, for William McGilvery, who was the main factor, but clearly with tongue-in-cheek reference to Fort William, Scotland. Um, but anyway, at Fort William, they also had pipers, and so Abe has been a piper, working and living history in a museums, and he has also kind of gone down this rabbit hole of obsession that I have to try to find things, and he found this really cool reference to a George Mackay? I think it's George Mackey, but a George Mackay Piper uh, in an encyclopedia from the 18th century, which is why I am playing Peabrock on Border Pipe. So I'm just going to read for you. So this comes from the second edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which was published, I think, around 1777 or so. Anyway, this is part of its entry for bagpipe. Formerly, there were in the Isle of Skye a kind of colleges where the highland bagpipe was taught, the teachers making a use of pins stuck in the ground instead of marks for musical notes. One of these colleges, George Mackey, the reformer of the lowland bagpipe, is said to have attended seven years. He had before been the best performer on that instrument in that part of the country where he lived, but while attending the college at Skye, he adapted the graces of the highland music to the lowland pipe. Upon his return, he was heard with astonishment and admiration, but unluckily not being able to commit his improvements to writing, and indeed the nature of the instrument scarce admitting of it, the knowledge of this kind of music hath continued to decay ever since, and will probably soon wear out altogether. What contributes much to this is that bagpipers, not content with the natural nine notes which their instrument can play easily, force it to play tunes requiring higher notes, which disorders the whole instrument in such a manner as to produce the most horrid discords, and this practice brings, though undeservedly, the instrument itself into contempt." There is so much going on in this entry that I want to talk about and pick apart, and it's being made all the more complicated by the fact that I am currently, like, 20 minutes into a conversation with Abe Zatek on Messenger talking about this encyclopedia entry again, because um, there's so many interesting things to kind of ponder about this bagpiper who worked for the Northwest Company, whether or not it's the same guy. And it's really interesting. The spelling in the Encyclopedia Britannica spells Sky, S-K-I-E, and Mackie, M-A-C-K-I-E, C-K? Yeah, C-K-I-E. So, like, it is conceivable that it is also Mackay, right? If it's spelled sky is that way. But uh, anyway, that's for a different topic. I really desperately want to have Abon for a full on conversation about uh, kind of what we know about or what he knows about the fur trade pipers. But like just thinking about this entry, assuming it's a different person, George Mackey, what does it tell us? The things that I find really interesting about this is 
the idea that music is so horribly siloed is sort of broken by George Mackey. Like, in a way, George Mackey demonstrates the silo, that he's a lowland piper, he goes to Sky, learns how to play presumably Pibrach, or at least, you know, Hebridean-style, uh, like, inner Hebride-style highland pipes, except on lowland pipes, and people can hear the difference and really like it. So there's a silo there. But we also see that it's popular, right? Like, people like that other type of music. George Mackey broke the silo of being a lowland piper to go learn music in the in the Hebrides. Maybe from the McCrimmons, maybe from Sky, um, or somebody else. But also, it's really interesting, the detail about the sticks, right? Again, one of the reasons that I was so slow to really care much about um, musical theory is because of that, right? Is because the thing that we hear about as bagpipers and being interested in history is about Kantrach and about how Pibrach doesn't make musical theory sense, and the way people wrote it is all sorts of convoluted. You just make music a different way. The other thing I really like about this is, um, obviously, that detail that already in 1777, the Encyclopedia Britannica felt the need to complain about bagpipers pinching beyond the nine notes. So, like, playing into high Bs, high Cs, maybe even high Ds. Um, I just love that that made it into the encyclopedia entry. Um, yeah, what contributes much to this is the bagpipers not content with the natural nine notes, which their instrument can play easily but they force it to play tunes requiring higher notes and discords the whole instrument. Like, that's the problem with bagpipes, is us stinking pipers who always want to pinch up notes. Again, I often think, like, I have these vague ideas of where, like, my theoretical framework sits for why I approach this music the way I do, and sometimes it's hunches, honestly, um, and sometimes it's reading, but something I read so long ago that I forgot where it came from, and sometimes those pinching notes is one of those things where I kind of feel like, am I making this up? Do I make this up? How does nobody do this? I must be making it up. Um, but yeah, it's lovely to get these reinforced little uh, snippets. But yeah, 1777, we're complaining about Piper's pinching up. Um, also, no place in here, uh, I think it's worth mentioning, does it say that bagpipes are outlawed? Um, because, you know, they weren't, uh, which you can hear my conversation with Key Sanger a couple seasons back to to get the gist of that conversation. But, you know, this encyclopedia was published during the time of the prescription when supposedly bagpipes are outlawed, but it doesn't show up in here because that's a myth that came about later. I also want to be careful to, like, again, remind ourselves that an encyclopedia written in 1777 is not by default true, right? Like, the source, like, encyclopedias by their nature are too much. Like, there's too much information in them, you're not getting an expert to write these things. Like, it's really interesting to me that George Mackey kind of doesn't exist anywhere other than this entry. Um, and it's really detailed. Like, how is this guy so important to the lowland piping tradition and nobody really wrote about him? Um, and he hasn't turned up in, in any records. Like, I think... Maybe some more stuff's going to turn up, but it also is conceivable that there are some errors, you know, inherent in this, uh, in in this creation, like in the creation of this encyclopedia. But it, the things that I like about it are kind of what it's confirming other things that I have 
kind of thought in the past. Uh, but I want to like talk about these, like there's a big difference anyway, like this high B's, high C's. He's talking about that. The encyclopedia is mentioning this in 1777 being such a big problem. This was hard for me because my big sources were trying to uncover the repertoire of an 18th century bagpiper, a 1790s bagpiper, was using Donald McDonald's collection from 1828 and 1821. There aren't any high B's in those collections. There aren't any high C's. Everything is, uh, it, it's just within that kind of normal scale uh, that we think of for today on Highland piping. So, like, I didn't, it didn't occur to me until quite a long ways into research and working through the podcast and playing through other sources, seeing that the older stuff, the high B's and high C's were more normal. Um, and it's sort of funny that it's, you know, today the Lowland and Border Piper Society is like trying to encourage people occasionally to use those extra notes. But, you know, you certainly don't see that kind of thing from Highland piping. And there's this idea that extended range is a border piping thing and not a Highland piping thing. But clearly um, everybody was capable of doing it and, and maybe did it. So Donald McDonald doesn't have any high B's. Donald McDonald's collection is published fully 20 years after the period that I'm really interested in for George Mackay, but the person who does have high Bs is Patrick McDonald. Um, something that we're going to hear on future episodes is me playing through the repertoire of single pipers. The reality is that when I started this podcast, I had no idea how many resources were available. I think I had looked at Ross's music page when I first started the podcast in terms of like podcast of egg by power like many years ago um but i didn't quite realize what a treasure trove it was at the time i was just listening to some of the audio recordings that he has on that website and it took a long time for me to like start going there for archival sources it's not until after 2020 um and so i just didn't realize how many things there were available and at this point like i feel like i have like three pipers who were active during the era that I'm interested in, and I have like an idea of their repertoire. And we've heard a lot of them on the podcast already. John Sutherland uh, will continue to play through because that's a pretty exhaustive collection of a piper in the 1780s who played probably all the instruments I play. Um, and maybe Northumbrian small pipes, not 100% sure on that one. Um, and then we've got, you know, Walker Jackson, of course, who published his tune book in the 1780s. We don't have all of his repertoire, but we've got his version of several of his best, you know, most popular tunes. Um, and then we've also got Patrick McDonald's collection. Patrick McDonald and Joseph McDonald collected all these tunes, but there's a whole section of it that is just the tunes that they got from one piper in and Thorso, right? And in that collection of tunes is a tune with high B. There's also a tune in there with G sharps. There's some really interesting things going on there. And, you know, over the month away, that's sort of the thing that kicked this into high gear was playing through all of those tunes in Patrick McDonald that I know came from one piper and just seeing what, what clicked about it and people kind of pushing back and saying, Hey, if you look at the key signature, there's something else going on here. Kind of most interestingly to me anyway, is my way of experimenting with the music of like, and tried a couple different ways to see what I like. I thought I was doing something really kind of different from what Patrick McDonald wrote down because I didn't understand the key signature. Um, and after I posted it saying, well, here's just me experimenting. Um, somebody commented like, no, that's, that's how it's written. You're not doing any innovating here. This is actually how it's written. So like, again, what I think of when I'm being really anachronistic of like, well, I'm sure they didn't do this. They did. Uh, anyway, let me play that tune for you.
The tune is an A Dorian, so it's like in the key of C, but it's got an F sharp notated on the score. So uh, yeah, this is the one I uploaded it while I was gone saying, well, here's just me doing some innovation or some playing around. And Stephen McNally, who's been working on that David Young uh, manuscript stuff lately, he's like, it's so weird that this tune does this. And I was like, oh no, this is just me messing around. He's like, no, that's how it's written. It's written this way. It's the only one, you know, like there's a couple outliers in this repertoire of a single piper where they do this funky thing. Um, but anyway, here it is. This is tune 24 in A Dorian. A Dorian tune. Uh, there's a couple other interesting things in that selection, but we're gonna get a whole we're gonna get a whole episode about that topic, uh, or about Patrick McDonald's collection and just the single piper. But one of the things I was thinking about saying in this episode was I don't need to learn music theory because I've got y'all. Because I was getting these lovely messages from Rod Nevin trying to explain um, bagpipe or music theory to me, and uh, I have kind of a, a constant stream of support and help and, and suggestions from uh, James Moyer and John Charles uh, on our like little chat. And Stephen McNally has been talking to me a bunch of while posting these videos while he's been working on moving everything uh, to be more bagpipe friendly in the David Young manuscript. Uh, and then also I've got a whole f you know flight of people on TikTok that are helping too. So um, Dan, uh, Production Road, and Jenna Bagpipes have all been kind of holding my hand through this process. It's been, uh, but anyway, it finally clicked. So in a way, to, to get back to Patrick McDonald here, in a way the podcast can end now, right? If we have got Walker Jackson and uh, Sutherland and uh, Patrick McDonald, like we don't need to, I don't need to keep on reinventing the wheel and trying to figure out the repertoire. We've got the repertoire of a couple of 18th century pipers right in my window, but I've just become addicted to trying to figure it out other ways. The way that I was reverse engineering the possible repertoire of George Mackay was looking at Donald McDonald's collection from 1821 and 1828 and seeing what tunes I could find, um, in older collections, especially once, you know, COVID hit and I spent more time online and in archives, realizing just how much stuff is available on archive.org or uh, National Library of Scotland and looking through those James Aird collections, I could find tunes in James Aird's published things that came out right in the time period I was interested in that also showed up in Donald MacDonald. I could also find older versions of them, right, that showed up in um, Oswald or Robert Bremner or um, even in, like, some of the Ramsey stuff. So, like, it was... Uh, and Rick Gibbon, like, stuff was around. And in that process, I started to fall in love with... 
country dance books. And man, am I in love with country dance books. They're so good. And especially in that period where I was like, oh man, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to find the repertoire. Uh, but look at all this cool music that was published in the 18th century. And I realized that the 18th century is like this golden era of printed music. There's so much of it that came out then. Uh, it starts to be readable to us um, really in the 18th century. And a lot of it's been made, made available online. And I fell in love with playing these country dance tunes. Y'all know, you've heard me play them a bunch, but I always had this inkling like, I don't know that Piper's ever played this stuff. Like, this doesn't feel like bagpipe music to me. But again, John Sutherland to the rescue. So here I am playing one of my favorite tunes that doesn't sound anything like what I imagine Scottish music to be, Pantheon. Uh, in fact, it reminds me of like a Russian national anthem. Um, and, and I was like, well, this isn't played on bagpipes. But who played it on bagpipes? John freaking Sutherland. It is in his manuscript. So like, a bagpiper in the 1780s was clearly also pawing through these country dance book collections and playing them. So anyway, here is my recording of Pantheon, uh, which is part of a set uh, that I recorded for the album Pay the Pipe Maker.
So all of those tunes come from the same country dance collection, and uh, astute listeners to the podcast will not be surprised to hear that it is from Strait and Scalern's 204 Country Dances from 1775. I think Strait and Scalern was my favorite country dance book for a couple years, kind of edged out by Watlin's celebrated circus tunes, but still holding in there with maybe the most I recorded. But the Pantheon, that's the tune that comes from... Um, the tune that comes from Sutherland's manuscript as well. Uh, but yeah, so Miss Fowler's Delight, the Nabob, Pantheon, and the Oak Tree. And I think the Nabob is an interesting title for just how connected people in Scotland um, and Ireland as well, but Scotland more so to like what's going on in the rest of the British Empire, right? Like John MacDonald, the guy who first wrote the Bagpipe book, it didn't get published, but you know Patrick MacDonald's brother wrote the first book on Peabrook uh, on his on his trip to India, uh, to become a nabob, become a wealthy person, kind of gain a bunch of wealth over in India. Doesn't do that, of course. Uh, he dies, but um, anyway, so the nabob, it feels like a particularly good tune to play, too. I mentioned in my tips that you don't need to have a vast, you know, deep well of musical theory understanding in order to get a lot out of this music, but if you can read staff notation in a couple different places, you will get more from it. And it's also a lot easier to transpose and kind of move things around. And that's what I did with the intro music. O'Farrell has it written, uh, the intro music for, for this season is The Humors of Toddy, and it's a tune written by O'Farrell, and so it kind of hangs out in that D range, you know, beneath where we're comfortable as Highland Piper, but because I learned from O'Farrell, like, O'Farrell is sort of who taught me how to play music, I feel like. Once I got a hold of that lovely Patrick Skye and Patrick Hutchinson edition of the uh, O'Farrell Pocket Companion, I was just... I was crazy for it. I consumed it. I played it all the time. And I taught myself how to read staff notation down there, and now I can kind of do it without thinking about it. And so it's really easy to just, you know, read that music and play it on small pipes sort of make those adjustments in my head. And that's what I wound up doing for our intro music. Um, but first, I'm going to show you, I'll remind you what the tune is here by giving it to you as O'Farrell wrote it. So O'Farrell has it not in D major, where I wind up playing it if we transpose it, but in G major. So so anyway, here is our intro music, The Humors of Toddy, as O'Farrell wrote it, and probably around 1800. Wrote it's a strong word, as he published it. Can't find any other versions of it, though, so it might be O'Farrell's. Uh, O'Farrell, as far as I know, is the only source of this tune. Goodman has it, too, but it's a note-for-note -note copy. So that's how Farrell wrote it, and here's how we have it as the intro. One, two. 
Tati is such a good tune. I really like that new intro sting. Uh, not going to mind listening to that for a year. Uh, speaking of things to look forward to this year, you know, last year, one of my favorite episodes was the 50,000 download special when everybody sent in tracks and little introductions to it. I want to do that again this year. I don't know if we'll be hitting a benchmark or anything, but just think to yourself, self, I wouldn't mind contributing a tune. I'm giving you a couple months heads up. I think it'll make sense for it to be another kind of midsummer uh, episode. If you're curious right now, we're at 61,000 downloads. So I'm kind of clumping along at uh, 10,000 downloads every half year, I guess. I don't know how that works out. But anyway, think about a tune you want to contribute. Same thing, record a tune, tell a story about it, and I'll happily kind of make a, a mixtape of it. The other thing I was going to remind you, like, you know how my this has been my approach to it. You know, I hope that this manifesto of sorts or kind of explaining my process is helpful to you, either helpful to do it yourself and get more out of it or helpful to at least understand what in the heck I'm doing and why. Um, so either way, I hope it's useful. But if you are doing something similar, if you've got a project going where you're uh, looking through all of David Young's manuscript and moving everything to play comfortably on a border pipes, for example, and you'd like to uh, host an episode uh, of Where Two Talks Bagpipe and History Podcast, I'd love to have it. So, you know, get in touch. I'm happy to kind of talk you through the mechanics of it. Um, and offer any kind of feedback and, and tips to, to make that happen. I know it's a, a bigger, I know it's a big undertaking, uh, especially with, you know, the pretty excellent guest hosts we've already had, but I am happy to, to share this, this feed, uh, for, for more bagpipe and history that isn't just listening to me play music and natter on over and over again. So thanks everyone for listening. If you want to support the podcast, as always, you can go to patreon.com slash way where you can hear a radically different first draft of this episode, uh, as well as some bonus episodes and all kinds of, uh, interesting things over there. And yeah, I guess we'll go out with another, uh, high, another interesting tune. We didn't, I didn't actually put in a track of me playing high B's on Highland pipes. So this is just going to be a short snippet from Ayers Rondo, which is uh, again, a track that I put on pay the pipe maker, but you can hear me pinching up into high B using uh, Highland bagpipes. So anyway, cheers everyone. Tune in next time for my discussion of music theory, complete with a live recording of the moment that it clicked and how I wanted to quit music. <laughs> because I understood music theory. So something to look forward to or run to the hills from in a couple weeks. Cheers.